please open your Bible to Joshua chapter 4. We're picking up the story uh, literally where we left it off midstream two weeks ago. You'll remember Israel is in the process of crossing the Jordan River from the east over to the west. And the story of the crossing of the Jordan continues here in Joshua chapter 4. It's a little bit of a long reading, but listen to the reading of God's word. When the whole nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Choose twelve men from among the people, one from each tribe, and tell them to take up twelve stones from the middle of the Jordan, from right where the priests stood, and to carry them over with you and put them down at the place where you stay tonight. So Joshua called together the twelve men he had appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe, and said to them, Go over before the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. Each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites, to serve as a sign among you. In the future, when your children ask you, what do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. So the Israelites did as Joshua commanded them. They took 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan, according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites, as the Lord had told Joshua. And they carried them over with them to their camp, where they put them down. Joshua set up the 12 stones that had been in the middle of the Jordan at the spot where the priest who carried the Ark of the Covenant had stood. And they are there to this day. Now the priest who carried the ark remained standing in the middle of the Jordan until everything the Lord had commanded Joshua was done by the people, just as Moses had directed Joshua. The people hurried over, and as soon as all of them had crossed, the ark of the Lord and the priests came to the other side while the people watched. The men of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh crossed over, armed, in front of the Israelites as Moses had directed them. About 40,000 armed for battle crossed over before the Lord to the plains of Jericho for war. That day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they revered him all the days of his life, just as they had revered Moses. Then the Lord said to Joshua, command the priests carrying the ark of the testimony to come up out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priest, come up out of the Jordan. And the priests came up out of the river, carrying the ark of the covenant of the Lord, No sooner had they set their feet on the dry ground than the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and ran at flood stages before. On the tenth day of the first month, the people went up from the Jordan and camped at Gilgal on the eastern border of Jericho. And Joshua set up at Gilgal the twelve stones that he had taken, or they had taken, out of the Jordan. He said to the Israelites, In the future, when your descendants ask their fathers, What do these stones mean? Tell them. Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the Jordan before you until you had crossed over. The Lord your God did to the Jordan just what he had done to the Reed Sea when he dried it up before us until we had crossed. He did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful and so that you might always fear the Lord your God. This is God's word. As we noted uh, two weeks ago, this narrative is rather complex, and it's long. It weaves together several concurrent 
actions of Joshua, the officers, the priests, the people, and the 12 men selected from the tribes. When we looked at Joshua 3, you'll remember we already focused on some of the elements we see in this chapter as well, that God leads his people, he gives them commands, the people obey those commands, and he gives them this sign of cutting off the water as a reassurance that he's with them. And so we see that, those truths in this chapter as well. But this week I want to focus on two basic practices for the life of faith that we learn in this passage. Two basic practices. The first practice is this. Remember God's faithfulness. Remember God's faithfulness. Marshall Duke and Robin uh, Fivouche are psychologists with Emory University's Family Narrative Project. They've been studying the role of family narratives and stories in family life. They've found that children, the more children know about their family history, the healthier and more resilient they are. In one study, Duke and Fivouche asked children 20 questions such as, do you know where your parents met? Or do you know about an illness or tragedy that happened in your family? And they concluded that, quote, the more children knew about their family's history, the stronger their sense of control over their lives, the higher their self-esteem, and the more successfully they believed their families functioned. These questions turn out to be the best single predictor of children's emotional health and happiness. Even hearing bad stories about when bad things happen to the good people in your family helps children to build resilience. It tells them that they're part of a family that rises above and that faces problems squarely. Storytelling within a family strengthens fam familiar bonds and it helps kids to be more resilient. Duke and Favouche conclude that children who have a strong sense of what they call intergenerational self are generally more resilient and self-confident. That they know where they stand in a long line Similarly, national history plays a role in shaping national identities. Think of the 4th of July in the United States and Remembrance Day in the UK and Canada and Anzac Day in Australia and New Zealand. Each plays a role in establishing the national identity of these respective nations as they each celebrate stories that these countries tell about themselves. But they tell slightly different stories and so shape slightly different identities. In America on the 4th of July, we celebrate our independence and our right to self-rule and self-determination. And that really is central to the American identity, that we are independent people with all the good and bad that comes with that. On the other hand, Anzac Day in Australia, a similar commemoration, but starting with World War I, celebrates endurance, even in the face of defeat, courage, ingenuity, and good humor in the starkest of circumstances. And these stories that we tell about our nations help shape the difference, the, the noticeable difference between an Australian and an American, for example, or between a Canadian who remembers Remembrance Day and an American who celebrates Fourth of July. National stories shape our national identities. Now, this story in Joshua 3 and 4 isn't just about how Israel came over a geographic barrier in a neat way. It's more like a story about Washington crossing the Delaware River. It becomes part of the national identity of Israel. This is their shared family history. The crossing of the Jordan River is a foundational event. 
it's foundational for Israel's national identity. It's linked together with the Passover in Egypt and the crossing of the Reed Sea or Red Sea. Uh, it's Reed Sea, but your Bible might say Red Sea. Uh, crossing that over. Again, I'm giving you these little teasers for the Q&A time if you want to come to that Sunday school and find out. Uh, it, 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 uh, it's linked together with the Passover and the crossing of the Reed Sea. In verse 19, we're told that Israel crossed the Jordan River on the 10th day of the first month. And that's the day when Israel was supposed to select its lamb that it would sacrifice as part of the Two crossings form a pair. Israel left Egypt by crossing the Reed Sea on dry land, and then it wandered in the wilderness, and Israel left the wilderness by again crossing a body of water, the Jordan River, on dry land. And the two events really are one event, linked together as one foundational event. And so they're remembered this way as one complex event in several psalms, for example. Psalm 66.6 says, He turned the sea, the Reed Sea, into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. It moves breathlessly from one to the other. And in the same way, Psalm 114, The sea looked and fled. The Jordan turned back. So in Israel's mind, leaving Egypt all the way to crossing into the Jordan, it's all one thing, being called out of slavery and being brought into the land and made into God's people. And this foundational event unifies the nation. Notice in 4.1, actually it happens in 3.17, all the nation, but again in 4.1, when the whole nation had finished crossing the river. Up until now, we keep hearing about the people and all the people. But here in 4.1, they're a nation, a nation that crosses the river together. And in 4.11, all the people. And 4.12 stresses, these tribes, Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh, whose land was on the east side of the river, they sent their soldiers with the other tribes. So all 12 tribes together, they all crossed together. We can even say Israel went into the Jordan River as a group of nomads and came out as the nation of Israel, a nation unified as it remembers God's faithfulness. What is God's faithfulness to remember? Joshua draws out three elements of God's faithfulness here when he instructs the Israelites how to teach their children. Notice at verse 7, he says, this, these stones are to be a sign that the waters were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is a symbol of God's presence, his presence with Israel in their very midst that God goes with Israel into the waters and cuts off the sea. God's not a faithful God from far away. He's a faithful God who's present with his people, even when they're crossing the flooding Jordan River. He's faithful and present with his people. In verses 23 and 24, Joshua focuses on a second aspect of God's, uh, uh, of what this event means. He focuses on God's power. Notice he says, when the priests entered the river, God dried up the waters of the Jordan, which is a sign that the hand of the Lord is mighty. If God were faithful but powerless, it would be nice knowing that he has fond thoughts of us and is faithful to us, but what difference would it really make if he had no power? But Joshua says, no, the faithful God is mighty. He's a divine king who comes up against a flooding river that appears insurmountable, but exercises his mighty power over creation and drives the waters back 
and holds them off while his people crosses through the river. This is a mighty king who is faithful and present with his people. And then third in, in verse 24, Joshua also says this miraculous crossing is not just for Israel's benefit, but it's for all the peoples of the earth. God's power and faithfulness extends into the land of Canaan. He'll be faithful in this new land, but it actually extends through all the world. So in this passage, we see a key dynamic of the life of faith. The life of faith is about remembering God's faithfulness. It's about remembering what he has done for us. The life of faith in the first instance is not about us remembering to do anything. It's about remembering what has already been done for us. The life of faith means taking our place within a common story. Just like a national identity is shaped by stories we tell in holidays like the 4th of July, so the identity of God's people is shaped by remembering God's past faithfulness, by telling stories of his past acts. It's about finding your story, the story of your life, within the larger story of God's work in the world. And we don't just find this identity as individuals remembering God's faithfulness. The stories of God's faithfulness are a collective memory. We're brought into a unity with others who share this common story, who find a common identity in God's past faithfulness to us. Paul makes this point about the unity of God's people in Ephesians 2. We heard uh, earlier from Ephesians 2 the assurance of pardon, that God in his grace made us alive with Christ. And then he goes on to say, Christ himself is our peace who has made us, Jews and Gentiles, into one, has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the Christ, thereby, or, sorry, through the cross, thereby killing hostility. All kinds of people from all kinds of backgrounds are united by the foundational redemptive act of God in Christ. Christ's death reconciles us to God. It makes peace with God. But it also reconciles us to each other. We're part of a common people, not based on an ethnic identity, not based on our own merit or accomplishment, not even based on a common interest. We're, based, we're a common people, a united people based solely on Christ's work uniting us in him as one body. So the life of faith is about remembering God's faithfulness. How do we do that? How do we remember God's faithfulness? After all, we can forget all sorts of things, can't we? Big things, little things, birthdays, anniversaries. We're prone to forget all sorts of things. In fact, we wear wedding rings as part as a sign to others that we're married, but as part as a reminder to ourselves. We have to do physical things to remind ourselves of spiritual truths even. In Joshua 4, the Israelites build a memorial to remind themselves of God's faithfulness. See in verse 2, 12 men are chosen from the people and 12 stones are taken from the midst of the river. Do you remember the last time you played in a river? Maybe a shallow river and you built a dam out of river stones and rocks. And if you're a kid building a dam, 
what do you need? You need that big rock that you can't carry on your own. And so you try and get mom or dad to come move a real big rock into place, right? Have you guys done this? Made dams in the river? Well, that's what they're doing here. Remember what those river rocks feel like? Joshua instructs these 12 men to find the biggest rock you can get up on your shoulder and carry it with you to where we're going to camp tonight. These 12 stones represent the 12 tribes of Israel. The 12 tribes and the 12 stones are brought together to make one thing, one memorial. Like the 12 tribes, the stones are said in, in this passage to cross over the river. Like the 12 tribes, they're said to come to rest at the camp. And there they're set up as maybe a carn, a sort of stack of rocks, or maybe a ring of standing stones as a reminder of God's faithfulness. Remembering God's faithfulness doesn't happen by chance. We need to be intentional. We need to use memorials in our life to remember God's faithfulness. Even attending church together on a weekly basis is a memorial. It's a reminder of what God has done. And God has given to us other signs to remind us of his faithfulness. Baptism, the Lord's Supper. So the first practice that this passage teaches us is to remember God's faithfulness. And you need to remember God's faithfulness in your life. There's two ways to remember God's faithfulness in your life. First, you need to link your story up to the big picture. In verses 23 through 24, Joshua explains the Jordan River crossing in terms of the Exodus. The Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you to pass over, just as he had dried up the Reed Sea. He's saying, you can understand what's happening today in terms of what happened in the past. And in the same way, we don't understand what's happening today until we come to terms with God's big acts of deliverance in the past. We remember God's faithfulness in our lives as we learn to see our lives in terms of the large story of God's big acts of deliverance. That is to say, in simple terms, the most important event in my life, my life as a Christian, happened 2,000 years before I was born. The most important event in my life is not the election of a president or the coronation of a, of, a, of a queen. The most important event in my life is that my king, Jesus Christ, died to defeat sin and death before I was ever born, that he rose again to bring life everlasting before I was ever born. This is part of my family story. This is the family that I live in and that I grow up into, the family of a king who died for his people and rose again. So you remember God's faithfulness as you see your life in terms of this bigger story. You're part of something bigger than just yourself. The second way we need to remember God's faithfulness, though, is remembering his faithfulness to us and to our families in specific. We need to tell stories about God's faithfulness to our family. You need to tell your kids, if you have kids, about times that God provided for you when you didn't know how you would be provided for you need to remind your spouse or your, or your brothers and sisters or your parents about times perhaps that God convicted us of something. We repented and came to new life through that. Or about how God has reconciled relationships in our life. We need to remember that God has been faithful to us and has delivered us. 
I don't mean to put Lee on the spot, but if you ask him after service, he can show you a drawing in his Bible of rocks, 12 rocks stacked up that have written on them, ways that God has been faithful to him over the years. We need to make concrete reminders. If you ask me, I can tell you lots of stories from my parents about times God has been faithful to them when they didn't know how God would provide. And I hope that one day my kids will be able to do the same. So the first practice of this passage is we need to remember God's faithfulness. But there's a second passage, uh, uh, practice in this passage that I've already hinted at, and it's this. We need to teach God's faithfulness. We need to teach God's faithfulness. Israel sets up these rock memorials to remind them of God's faithfulness. Now, you need to know in Israel's context, various surrounding nations set up stones as sorts of idols. It was thought that a standing stone could have the spirit of a god inhabit it. And by showing reverence to the standing stone, you could show worship to the god who lived in it. And we see this same sort of thing in various other religions today. Think, for example, of Buddhist prayer flags that are thought to pray when the wind blows them, or Buddhist prayer wheels that when you spin them, say a prayer. And it's not just other religions. Christians and non-Christians of all sorts wear cross necklaces and have cross tattoos. And it doesn't necessarily mean a thing to them. It doesn't really mean anything in particular. It's just a sort of religious charm that somehow is thought to protect them. And in a few months, we'll see that this danger is live even in the book of Joshua. In chapter 22, when the eastern tribes go back to the east, on the way they build an altar. And the other tribes get suited up for war, and they say, what are you guys doing? Are you building a false idol? Are you building an altar to another god? And they, of course, we'll get there, but they say, no, no, this is an altar to the true god and a reminder of what happened with us in this land. But the question is, is this religious innovation? Are these memorials just empty rituals? What are these memorials to? So how are these stones that Israel set up in Joshua 4 any different than the stones pagan nations were setting up? The key difference between pagan standing stones and this memorial that Joshua builds can be seen in two respects. First, notice how Joshua describes the stones in verse 6. He says they are a sign, a sign. They're not something in themselves. There's not a God that lives in these stones. You don't worship them. They're a sign. What do you know about billboards when you drive down the highway? The, the, the goal isn't the billboard and that you read the billboard. It's pointing you to go to McDonald's or whatever the billboard is. Uh, the, the one on the guide recently is traction. Go buy traction tires. It's pointing you to do something. And in the same way, these, are, these stones are a sign pointing beyond themselves to the reality that God has been faithful to Israel in crossing the river. When Aaron made the golden calf in the book of Exodus, he says to Israel, look, these are your gods who brought you out of Israel. And then he builds an altar in front of the golden calf. But see how different Joshua's words are here. He doesn't set up these stones and say, look, here's your gods. He says, this is a sign. It's a memorial forever. And here's the second key difference that we notice. Is that this stone sign serves a purpose. When your children see them, they will ask, what, what do these stones mean to you? Why are these stones here? What do they mean? If you spend any time with young children, you know they're constantly asking, why? Why? What's it for? Why? If you don't know this, 
Go talk to Tricia or Danielle Tamanjo, who spend time with kindergartners. They'll tell you how often kids are asking questions. Why? And Joshua knows the kids are no different in his day. When they walk along the Jordan River and they see these stones, they'll ask why. What does it mean? And Joshua says, when your kids are asking you questions like that, don't roll your eyes. Don't brush it off. This is a teaching moment. I think our youngest son's not in here, so I can bring this up. We've been reading through the book of Acts as a family. And towards the end, you know, Paul gets arrested and persecuted in various ways. And every night, Ezra keeps asking, why do they want to kill Paul? Why do they put him in prison? And we say, well, because they didn't want Jesus preached. And well, why? And then it keeps going. And that's a moment to teach. Uh, last night he said, is it because they wanted the treasure map for themselves? And they said, oh, no, wait, that's the movie we were watching. And you remember that. <laughs> Getting his stories crossed. But, but as, as parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles, don't get exasperated. That's an opportunity to teach your children. Joshua says, seize on these teaching moments. Teach God's faithfulness to your children. Verse 7, tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. And then later he says, tell them, Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground, for the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan. This is talking to the children, generations down the road. Not, it's what it did for grandpa and grandma. He dried up the waters of the Jordan River for you until you passed over. This is part of your story, children. As the Lord your God did at the Reed Sea, so he dried, which he dried up for us. In traditional Christian language, we call this teaching component of faith catechesis, instruction through question and answer. And so if you look at the catechisms, the Heidelberg Catechism, the Westminster Catechism, it's questions and answers. Here's questions a parent might ask their child or a child might ask their parents, and here's how to answer. In the Boston Public Library, on the landing halfway up the stairs, there's a pair of stone lions. Uh, they're made out of marble, and when the sculptor turned them in, he, they were unpolished. They were donated by one of the Civil War uh, regiments from Massachusetts, and so it's a memorial in honor of that Civil War regiment. Uh, initially, the architect was upset that he turned in these unpolished, rough stone lions. Now, if you go up the stairs and come around the corner, the only thing in reach is the lion's tail. Now, that lion's tail, the lion's tails on either side, are the most polished marble you will ever see. Because every kid and adult who walks by reaches their hand out and rubs that bit of the tail that they can touch. So there's a polished bit of marble on the tail, even though the rest of the lines are all rough. Now, the intention of these stones is not just that they'd be rubbed every time children walk by until they're polished smooth, polished by generations of hands. No, the stones themselves are meant to polish generations. That as each generation asks what it means, they will be told what God had done at the River Jordan, and they would be instructed in God's faithfulness. This teaching component, catechesis, has to be a basic feature of the Christian faith. There is a perennial temptation that we must always be on guard against of slipping into empty, meaningless ritual without engaging our minds. And the way to protect against empty, meaningless ritual is by engaging our minds, by catechesis, by teaching. It's not simply enough that children are present in this worship service. There's no magic that they're happening to hear the words of the sermon passing over their heads but not through their ears, observing something they can't comprehend. No, kids need to be able to ask questions of their parents and grandparents and the people that happen to be sitting next to them. 
Children need to be able to understand the faith so that it can become their own. During the Lord's Supper, as the elements are being distributed, there's no magic in the elements themselves. Children need to understand, and so there needs to be a whisper, a whisper in the congregation, a whole chorus of whisper, whispers as children ask, what does this mean? And as parents remind them, as parents ask, what does this bread and wine signify? And as kids say back, it's the body of Jesus. It's the blood of Jesus. Why do we go to church on Sunday? Is it just because that's what good people do? Is that what you want your kids to grow up thinking? Good people go to church on Sunday, and so I probably should occasionally. No, no. We go to church on Sunday because Jesus Christ was raised from the dead on a Sunday to bring life everlasting, even to bad people. It's not just something for good people to do to show they're good. It's a day when bad people celebrate that the Lord Jesus Christ was raised from the dead 2,000 years ago on a Sunday morning. Early Christian churches and carrying on to today, even in their construction, were modeled closer to an ancient schoolhouse than an ancient pagan temple. I mean, look around you and think about it. This is a bit like a schoolroom, isn't it? You're all seated facing forward towards a lectern, and I'm facing you so you can see me. If you went into a pagan temple, there'd be a big altar in the middle where sacrifices were burning, and maybe you'd get in around the side, and there'd be back rooms for the temple prostitutes, all sorts of stuff, okay? And our church doesn't look anything like that. It looks more like a classroom than anything else in the secular world. Because the exposition of God's word, the careful explanation of what God is telling us is central to Christian worship services. Of course, our faith is not merely intellectual. The goal of this service, the goal of the Christian life, is not just to learn facts, dry, empty, dead facts about the Bible. No, the goal is real, life-sustaining relationship with the true and faithful God. The goal of this Lord's Day service isn't simply to know facts about the Bible, but to personally encounter the true and living God, to worship Him and speak to Him in prayer. But if you go out on a date with your spouse or significant other, and you go to a movie and you hold hands and then you leave and you drive home and you never speak a word to each other the whole time, you never ask how their day was, I mean, in a sense you went on a date, but are you really relating to the other person? Holding hands is an important part of being on a date, and that's good. But if you're never going to talk to them and ask them anything about themselves and learn about them, you might as well just buy a ticket for yourself and hold the hands with the stranger sitting next to you at the theater. Okay? That's not the goal here. The, the goal is, in a sense, to feel God's presence and to be here with him, to be taken by the hand. But we also have to ask things about God and learn things about God, learn what God's like from his word and allow his word to search us, that it's a real relationship. And that has a necessarily intellectual component. This goal isn't in, or this isn't in opposition to the teaching component. They go hand in hand. Teaching the faith and God's faithfulness makes sure that memorials are for remembering, that they don't become empty rituals. For example, in Christian history, all sorts of days, in fact, I looked at a calendar, almost every day is set aside as a remembrance day for some saint or another. Tomorrow happens to be the saint of, or feast of St. Blaise. So there you go. Now, no doubt, initially these days were set aside with good intentions to remind people of a specific time God was faithful to the church. Just like we celebrate Reformation Sunday on the last Sunday of October to remember God's faithfulness to his church 
at the time of the Protestant Reformation. But when the church forgets what a specific day is meant to be a memorial of, it becomes an empty ritual. And so on the Catholic website that I was looking up what the feast of, uh, is tomorrow, the Feast of St. Blaise, it states, frankly, we know more about the devotion to St. Blaise by Catholics around the world than we know about the saint himself. We've forgotten what he, it's even a memorial to or what it was. He was martyred in 316, but apart from that, we know nothing about him. But we know that people have the day off work and different things happen in, in different countries. So it, it's this ritual it was meant to be a memorial, and yet over centuries, it's lost its meaning. And we see this very process happening in our own day. Some Puritans were worried, uh, were against celebrating Christmas, since there's no explicit New Testament command to celebrate Christmas Day. Now, the Bible gives us lots of warrant for setting apart feast days to remember God's faithfulness. And so, in principle, we should celebrate Christmas Day. It's a good reminder of God the Son's faithfulness in coming to His broken world in the incarnation. But in our own day, as you look around, many, many, many Americans celebrate Christmas Day, but they know more about how to celebrate Christmas than they do about what it means. They know all about eggnog and presents and mistletoe and grandma's house and gingerbread house and Santa Claus and all these sorts of things. And yet, if you ask them to explain why do we celebrate Christmas Day, many kids wouldn't be able to explain it. Many adults wouldn't be able to explain it. We're seeing in our very day one of our greatest remembrance days, the meaning of it being lost. We have to teach God's faithfulness, or else memorials to God's faithfulness become empty ritual and idols. And I don't mean to be a humbug, but Christmas apart from Christ, just the Santa Claus and all of that that you see in the grocery stores, is the most sappy, saccharine sentimentalism I've ever seen. It, it actually makes you sick. It's, 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 it's an idol. Three comments in conclusion. First, to teach about God's faithfulness, you have to know about God's faithfulness. You've got to know about God's faithfulness. The ideal of the church is not that you show up every Sunday and just listen to the preacher say what he's saying. No, the ideal of the Christian church is that everyone learns the family stories over time and can tell the family stories to others. That everyone in this congregation, everyone in this family is learning the gospel message, the good news of God's faithfulness shown in the life of Jesus so that they can go tell the stories to others. So that you, I don't care how young or old you are, so that you too can tell the stories to each other and to others. If you identify as a Christian, you need to be learning the stories you need to know about God's faithfulness so that you can teach others. Second, Joshua focuses on parents teaching children. But what about those of you who don't have children or whose children are grown and away? Is your job simply done? Or here's a bit of the Bible you get to pass on? No. Next week we're going to dedicate, or next week baby Danielle will be dedicated. No, sorry, I'm saying all things wrong here. Next week, baby Danielle will be baptized, and I will stand here and ask you as a congregation, do you, the people of the Lord, promise to receive this child in love, to pray for her, to help care for her instruction in the faith, and to encourage and sustain her in the fellowship of believers? And if you've been in this church for any length of time, you can probably look around and see children seated in this room who you have promised to pray for, 
to help care for their instruction in the faith, to encourage and sustain. If this truly is a family that shares family stories, which is what it's described as being, the family of God, adopted sons and daughters, then even those without kids are aunties and uncles in the faith, our grandparents in the faith, who are also tasked with teaching the children. So if you don't have your own children, I exhort you, come alongside parents. Help the parents teach the young kids. Give attention to the young kids in this church. It is, uh, you know, we read earlier about being trusted with, with material things that are little. What more could you be trusted with than the training of a child? Even ba baptizing infants, even the sacred sacrament of the church can become a meaningless, empty ritual if it's not supported by a church who together instructs the child in the faith and brings them up in the faith. Third, notice the very last verse of our chapter, verse 24. Joshua says these stone memorials are not only for Israel, but so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Like Israel, the church is called to be a living memorial, to be a reminder of God's faithfulness in the midst of the nations, to teach nations about God's faithfulness even to them. Even if they don't know him, he's still been faithful. As we uh, heard in the call to worship, his loving kindness, his steadfast love fills the whole earth. If you identify as a Christian, you shouldn't be, feel threatened when someone asks you questions about your faith, even if they're somewhat hostile questions. Like Joshua's day, the stones are meant to trigger questions, and you're meant to give an answer. And so if someone asks you questions about your faith, look at it as an opportunity, an opportunity to teach about God's faithfulness. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, but perhaps a family member dragged you along or you're interested in exploring what Christians believe, your questions are welcome. Ask your question. This isn't a cult where questioning is looked at as somehow uh, thwarting the authority of the church. Questions are welcome. In fact, we've recently started having a question and answer time in the fellowship hall during the Sunday school hour. So if you have questions, come back there and ask your questions. Or if you came with someone today, ask them their questions. Or if you came by yourself in the coffee time, ask someone your questions. Questions are welcome in the life of faith because they're an opportunity to teach about God's faithfulness to his people. Let us pray. Gracious Father, we thank you that to be a Christian in a very profound sense, we don't have to do anything except this. Remember that you have already chosen us, that you have already called us, that you have already sent your son to die for us, that you have already forgiven our sins for his work, that you have already called us into your family, that you have already reconciled us to yourself. We thank you that in a very real and profound sense, the Christian life is just remembering what you have already done for us and living out the life that's appropriate to family members who tell this sort of family story. Gracious Father, I ask for those who are Christians that they would have a boldness to study your word so that they can ask or answer questions that are asked, so that they can teach others about your faithfulness. I ask, Lord, for those who are not yet Christians but are here in this room listening, I ask that they would hear these stories and that they would want to remember these stories too as the true story of the world, that they would want to take on this family identity, this national identity for themselves, this identity based on Christ's work, not on their own merit. 
I ask for those who are not yet Christians that they would feel comfortable asking questions and that they would continue to ask questions as they think through what it means to be a Christian. We thank you, gracious Lord, that you are drawing to yourself the elect from every nation. We ask that we would live out our piece of that, being a living memorial in the midst of this county. We ask these things in the name of your Son and by the power of your Spirit. Amen. I'm doing two things at once here. <laughs> uh, our Confession of Faith from the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks, what are the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption? It's asking, what do we do to remember the work of God? And so let us answer together. Christian, what are these outward and ordinary means? The outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption are his ordinances.
Receive now the benediction of our Lord, and then we will sing together the doxology. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Thank you.